Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at ThoughtBot about developing great software. I'm Steph Carey. And I'm Chris Toomey. And together, we're here to share a bit of what we've learned along the way. So, hey, Chris, happy Friday. How's your how's your week been? Happy Friday. Uh, week's going well. It's snowing outside, which is very confusing, which will date this episode for anyone in the Boston area. But yeah, it's uh, it shouldn't be snowing. It's confusing me. It's kind of beautiful and picturesque. It's, uh, you know, very light, fluffy snow and uh, all of that. But I don't know. I'm not ready for it. So do you ever go out and play in the snow or do you just stay cozily like wrapped up inside? In previous years, we definitely would go play in the snow, particularly because my sister has two dogs that love the snow, like just can spend weeks out there and you throw a snowball and it's the most exciting moment in the world for them. And they just get that like excited puppy energy, despite being one's 12 and one's eight or something like that. So they're they're older dogs, but they just, you know, come alive in that moment. So all of us will bundle up and go out and uh, hang out with them for hours at a time because that's that's endless amounts of fun. Less of a thing right now for various reasons. But uh, yeah, I'm not as much of a snow person myself, but the dogs make it worth it. How about you? Are you a snow person? Yeah, I'm definitely a snow person. I don't love the cold, but I do love snowboarding. So I love snow when there's an activity that can be done. If I'm just sort of like stuck inside and it's really cold and I can't get outside, then that makes the snow more miserable. I also think it's beautiful. I really enjoy watching it. Although now living in South Carolina, I don't see the snow. Uh, it's quite different here. It's more like I think it's a high of like 60 today and sunny uh, weather that I'm totally happy with. But I'm also really enjoying seeing everybody's pictures of the snow because it is a gorgeous or to quote the movie Hunt for the Wilder People, it's very majestical. Majestical. Have you seen that movie? I feel like I've said that twice now, and I can't read you if you've <laughs> if you've seen that, if you get that reference. I have not. Actually, when you said it, it made me think of Wicked. There's a way in the books, I assume in the book, but also the, the musical where they say things like that, uh, just like slight variations on words. So that's where my head went, but I have not seen the movie. It's a very good movie. When you have another snowy, chill day, I highly recommend watching it. It's a lot of fun. Noted. That will go straight into the show notes. <laughs> I mean, that's what the people need. They need good movie recommendations. That seems to be our theme lately between Halloween movies. Now we've got Hunt for the Wilder People. Yeah, that's where we're at. That's basically what we do. We're just a podcast of movie recommendations and uh, other nonsense. Uh, we did have a bit of an adventure here yesterday. Uh, so... There's a tropical storm that's been blowing through the last couple of days, and Tim and I woke up with a start in the morning because we heard a really loud noise outside, and it turns out a giant tree had fallen across some power lines and, one, taken out power, but then, two, started a fire. So when we stepped outside on our front porch trying to identify what that loud sound was, it was still dark and raining a fair amount, so we couldn't see much, but we could just see flames in the road. So that that was an interesting start to the day. Uh, That's the, not what you want to see in the road. It's not. Uh, the power company was great that as soon as we reported the fire, they turned off all the power. So then that seemed to extinguish most of the flames. And then while Tim was walking around the house, just sort of like checking for any other damage, the storm's still going at this point, by the way. So I'm a bit nervous while he's out surveying the lands. And I'm inside and he's out front. And then all of a sudden you just hear like this splintering sound because we have a bunch of tall trees that surround our house. So you hear the splintering sound and he went around back to see what the sound was. And one of our giant trees had also fallen due to all the wind. Thankfully, it fell backwards away from the house because otherwise I'm pretty sure it would have taken out our back porch. So lots of people have been without power. Our house does have a generator, so that's really cool. Never used backup generator for power before. So that came in handy, although we still didn't have any internet or anything like that. So it's still made for a, a complicated day and trying to get work done. So yeah, it was it was an adventurous day. And are you still without power? We are. We're still without power. Uh, we've been talking to the power company, and they said it's just an estimate. They may get to us sooner, but realistically, they're thinking we may be without power for like four days. Wow. You are obviously at a different place that has power now, just for anyone listening on in the audience and wondering how the physics of that work. <laughs> but. Good point. Uh, yes, we have some family that does have power, which then it's been kind of fun. So my parents are the only ones that have power right now. My brother's without power. He has a friend that's without power. We don't have any. So we have all congregated at my parents' house and we're all trying to work and just live. And yeah, so it's it's been kind of fun just to get to like hang out with them during the day. An excuse to get together. Yeah, that feels like it'll be fun for a day, 
maybe two. And then very quickly, hopefully the four day estimate is, uh, well, it's Friday. So, you know, you got a little bit of weekend coming that'll give you a respite from that. But uh, hopefully that does not go on for too long. Or maybe you're the kind of family that can live and work in a small space together forever. I don't know. I've never found that type of family in the world, but I think we would do well. But yes, separate homes are great, too. (laughs) (laughs) What is it? Fences make good neighbors or something like that? Yeah, I've heard that phrase. But, yep. you know, separate houses make good families. Perhaps. <laughs> I don't know. That's not the way history was, but uh, that's too many digressions now. So unwinding the stack. Uh, well, yeah, sorry to hear that, but hopefully that uh, resolves itself soon. Thanks. On a more technical note, catching up with the week in terms of how work's been going, Amanda and I have been making some really great progress as we're putting together the RSpec training class. And this past week has been a number of, uh, normally I help out with user interviews. This one has been slightly different where it's been student interviews. So we've met with a number of people at the company who are interested in participating in the RSpec training course. So we could ask them questions around what's your experience with testing? What are you excited to learn in this course? what parts of the code base are hardest or easiest to test, uh, what concerns they may have about the class to find out what content people are interested in us bringing. So that has been a lot of fun to just get to talk to people and understand like, where is that friction with testing? Like, where are they experiencing that problem? And what are the areas they'd like to improve? Because the team is definitely like bought into like, they want to write test. They understand like the benefit of test, but then they're also experiencing pain around flaky test, or also they may feel like they don't have time to write test and then digging into, well, what is it that makes you feel like you don't have time to write tests? Is it because tests feel too slow? Is it because they're not valued enough by the team that then it seems as sort of like a wasteful activity and starting to understand more of that culture? So we still have um, a good bit of content to put together, but it's starting to take shape and I'm excited. I'm also a little nervous about conducting a class remotely. That part will be challenging. I've always done it in person the couple of times that I've taught a class. So I feel like that's something I'm also going to need to practice is to either get a friend or Amanda and I will practice with each other where we need to set up like a really nice remote setup so then we can still see people, but then also show content. And then thankfully there are two of us. So then someone can moderate like a Slack channel to then keep up with questions that people may be asking. But I feel like that's a a new hurdle into the, the teaching mix. If nothing else, you can be glad that you're not teaching a group of kindergartners where just having them mute the Zoom is, you know, you have to have a little placard and hold it up and with an arrow pointing to where it is. Those pictures from the internet right now are complicated, but um, yeah, definitely a a different medium and and some complexity. Although I, I think what you were just saying there sounds like there's opportunity as well. So the idea of being able to like have a Slack channel and have one of you monitoring that and sort of aggregating and then feeding questions into the primary person that's leading at that point. That sounds that sounds excellent. And um, I enjoy the fact that this is somewhat different work for ThoughtBot. Building a course is not necessarily the, the common sort of thing that ThoughtBot does, but that the ThoughtBot ethos of, well, let's talk to users and find out what they need. Users, in this case, like you said, use the word students, which is great to humanize the idea. Um, but having those upfront conversations and trying to make sure that we're not having a conversation going away for a while and coming back with a solution, but doing that more iteratively. I love that that just kind of bleeds through into all the work. So that's cool. Definitely. And I feel like, especially with like teaching, it's one of those areas where you could really, I mean, it's true with software too, but with teaching, it's one of those areas where Amanda and I could figure out what we think would be interesting to teach and what we want to talk about. But then people that are actually attending the class may be like, yeah, that's, that's cool. And all we get that what we really care about is this instead. So it's really helpful for us to help drive the content and where to focus. And like you tell us where you feel that you could use a better grasp on the understanding, or maybe you already have a great grasp of testing in general as a strategy, but maybe you're struggling with RSpec fluency. And so it's it's been really great feedback to have. One other interesting portion that has come up from talking to people as well is I love asking the question, like, what are your concerns with the course? Because everybody tends to have some slight concern because we are an external team. They're not familiar with Amanda and I. And here we are coming in as like the RSpec experts and testing experts, and we're going to share our knowledge. So I understand if they have some concerns around, uh, around the content itself or how we're going to then convey that information. Are we going to make it applicable to their code base and the pain points that they're seeing? So that's been a really interesting question to ask. And one of those concerns is that they have a team that has 
various levels of experience. So they have a team that comprises of juniors, someone that may be very new to testing in our spec, to others who have been coding and writing Ruby for 10 years. But yet, maybe there's still some areas in our spec that they would still like to level up. So then finding a way to create content that can speak to all those levels. And truthfully, it's one of those things that I don't think can be done well to like meet everybody at their level. And you really have to find like, who is your core group that you're going after? Kind of going back to where we're talking about the user interviews, like you can't strive to make everybody happy. You're going to have to figure out who are you tailoring this content to. And then you can find ways that others may also gain some value from it, but you really have to focus in on one group. So at least that's what I'm telling myself. I'll report back as to how that goes, but striving after who is the majority that's going to be in this class and then tailoring it for their needs while then still finding other topics that then may apply to people that are more senior. So in our case, we're going to or at least it's my plan that will probably tailor more towards people who are a bit newish to our spec and testing in general, within also some advancement, kind of like how Upcase is sort of like that finishing course. So we'll have everything from that more beginner friendly state to then also increasing the complexity to more of like, okay, you've been using our spec for a year now, but let's really like hone in on making you feel great about it. That definitely makes sense. And having the the idea of the who are we really talking to with this, but also where possible then trying to meet the other groups that you may not be directly targeting as much. But again, yeah, just that user centric point of view. Always great to see. How's your client work going? Uh, it's going well. Uh, I am rounding the corner. I actually have soft launched the sort of redesign site thing that I was working on that I talked with you last week about and ended up having the conversation with the other developer about the technology choices that I had made. Uh, that went really well. So you and I enumerated last week a bunch of considerations when taking on new technology. What are the things that like pros and cons that we would weigh? How would we think about that? Uh, and I think we ended up with a particularly good list. There was one that didn't really come up that did come up in my conversation with the other developer on the client team. And that was, if we're introducing this new technology, we have one more technology, but we don't get to get rid of the others in most cases. So like right now we have React as one technology, but we're now also introducing Svelte and a different way of doing client side work. And so do we plan to maintain those forever? Is this just one other thing? And now when people are switching back and forth, what are those switching costs going to look like? And that I, I felt like was actually a really that, that was a very real, very true consideration here. We talked through it a little bit more, came to the agreement that it was worth it for the potential benefits. But it was an interesting one that I don't know that you and I talked about as much, but it's definitely worth thinking about like, oh, now we have seven technologies in our stack instead of five. And what does that mean for new developers joining the team? That is an excellent point. It's my impression that the team is going to, presuming this goes well, as you're migrating away from like React or you're collapsing a React app into the Rails application and then moving forward with Inertia and Svelte, is that over time that React is going to disappear and it won't be one of the technologies that the team is using? Is that still the idea of where you're headed? So you will eventually reduce one of those tech stacks, but there is this interim period of where you're going to have all of them in use. Yeah, I can see why you would think that. Uh, seems like a very reasonable thing to think. Uh, so for the applications that I am rewriting, those will we're moving away from React into whatever this new technology stack is. And so in that case, that is true. But we will still have React in the broad platform technology stack. The admin system is built using React admin. And there's enough investment in that now. And it, it provides enough benefits that we think we're going to continue with that. That said, the nature of React Admin, in my experience, has been very much of like you're picking pieces and kind of snapping them together. It's less bespoke artisanal React. It's more it, you're writing React Admin, not React. That's not entirely true, but it's that sort of thing. So that made me feel a little more comfortable with it that like for our web apps, we're going to be using this technology. React Admin is kind of its own thing, but we're not unifying on React or Svelte really. But it, it does mean that we are going to have the two technologies still. So that is a limitation and a thing to consider and frankly, a reason not to do what we ended up doing. But um, but we still did it. So here we are. Yeah, like how you just said, you're like, that's a reason to not do the thing that we just did. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if we're being honest, programming is always about trade offs and optimizations. And there's no perfect answers. There's no silver bullets. And there's always legacy code and all those things that we need to keep in mind. So 
yeah, we made we made the decision. That said, now having built out the rest of this feature, the technology stack that we went with ended up being absolutely fantastic, even for just this little slice. And we did a collaborative code review of the first big PR that was introducing it because this was very new to the other developers. So we wanted to walk through it together. And I gave like a little demo of what the page looks like and then showed the code. And there were a bunch of moments of, oh, that's an okay, that's cool. That's familiar to me. And yet I see why it's a little bit different and special. And in particular, just to describe one of the workflows that we have in the app, uh, this is a, a small checkout flow. So user lands on a page, they pick one of a few items. They go to the next page, which is now fill out the credit card form. We submit the credit card form to Stripe. That is a you know quick async XHR sort of thing to Stripe, get back the token. And then we create an order in our backend. Uh, so this is posting to a Rails controller, creating that order. And then we move the user on. They, they get redirected to that order page. But the order isn't fulfilled yet because of the nature of how Stripe's workflow works. And we actually have a little bit of code that we have to do in our backend that takes a few seconds before it completes, and it may actually fail. So we have this sort of async workflow regardless. And what was really nice is it was incredibly easy using the combination of inertia and Svelte to do all the normal Rails controller stuff. And it felt very familiar as a Rails developer to do that. So you post to the create endpoint. And if it's good, then you redirect them to the show. If we have any errors, then we re-render new. So that was very familiar, but it happens to be that I'm re-rendering a Svelte new component. Um, But we can show errors, all those sort of things worked nicely. And then if we end up on the show page in the Svelte code, uh, I was able to do a quick polling thing. But the polling is using inertia to reload the page. So it's not actually doing a browser level refresh. Inertia is making an XHR for the data. And it just keeps doing that once every three seconds. And because of the way inertia works, it's not again, it's not refreshing the whole page. It's just reloading the data in the background, but without having to tell Rails anything fancy there. And then when we get the new data, either we transition to an error state or we transition to a successful state. It's very easy in Svelte to just say fade in on any new DOM node that we're bringing in. So we have this nice animated faded transition when we go from the loading state to the final state, which is either error or success. And so it's that sort of higher level of interactivity and fancy animations and those sort of things that seem to be more and more what folks are looking for. But it was, I won't say free, because that's not true. But it was very, very easy to layer on. It felt almost like progressive enhancement to sort of reuse a term. But I was able to do Rails stuff and just in a couple of places say like, hey, fade this in when it happens. And hey, automatically reload the page until we get the new thing. And it all just kind of worked without me having to fundamentally re-architect the system. And that I absolutely loved. Yeah, that sounds really nice. In terms of the React app, as you're porting over these features, so there's a checkout feature that you've ported over. Are we talking like five, 10? Like, are there a large number of features that then have to be ported over to the Rails app? I'm curious about how that work is scheduled to the point that then you can sunset that React app. For this particular React app, there's a handful of them in this case, um, which is actually one of the things that we want to be moving away from. So this first one, uh, I would say I've got 75% of the features now ported over. The next thing that I'm working on, unfortunately, is analytics, and it is making me very unhappy, uh, is how I would describe it. Uh, There's lots of silent failure modes, and I don't actually know if I'm getting it right, and I don't even know what the analytics are supposed to look like. And it's one of those things where I'm producing the analytics events, but some other team is consuming them. I don't have as direct access to them. And I think a lot of the analytics now are sort of, well, down the road, we want to do campaigns and targeting and things, but it's not even necessarily like I have a workflow that exists now that must not be broken. So I'm sort of just trying to re-implement the analytics as they exist, but we're using three different analytics platforms and et cetera, et cetera. So analytics is the next thing that I have to land, but that's sort of just to get the foundational architecture in place. And then the last feature is adding support for coupons in the checkout flow. And so once I get that, then this particular React app will be completely ported over and we can actually fully migrate all traffic. We're going to try and soft migrate traffic over. So non-coupon checkouts can go through this, but coupon ones will still go through the old app until we get coupon support. And then that app will go away. And then there's three or four other of these apps that I'll slowly be porting in in the same sort of way, but then they'll all be sharing an architecture, sharing a code base, sharing the analytics configuration, sharing you know all that other stuff. So that will be hopefully a benefit, but that's the plan is to just slowly work through all of those. We're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, ExpressVPN. So we all know how VPN protects your privacy and security online, right? So what's the best way to make sure that 100% of your data is encrypted so that no one can get a hold of your data? 
You guessed it, ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN creates a secure tunnel between all your devices and the internet so that everything you do online is encrypted. It reroutes your connection through a secure server, which blocks others from seeing everything that you do online. All they can see is that you're connected to an ExpressVPN server, but nothing beyond that. And it's not just for your phone or computer. ExpressVPN works on all your devices. It works on your tablets, smart TVs, and even your router, so your entire family stays protected. Plus, ExpressVPN is simple to use. Just open up the app, tap one button to connect, and that's it. Your data is your business, so protect it at expressvpn.com forward slash bike shed. Visit expressvpn.com forward slash bike shed to get three extra months of ExpressVPN protection for free. That's express, E-X-P-R-E-S-S, vpn.com forward slash bike shed to learn more. And thank you again to ExpressVPN for sponsoring today's episode of the Bike Shed. I hadn't really considered until now how analytics is one of the features that kind of breaks our desired workflow where we build what we need for today and then push off decisions until later. And analytics is the one where, well, we don't know that we need it today, but there's a chance that we'll want this data and we don't want to lose out on retroactive data. So we need to go ahead and implement it. I hadn't really considered that until now, how that's one of those areas where we lean into over-optimizing in the beginning because we may want it down the road. I don't know. It's uh, analytics is a weird one. The like question of do we do we have to though? Uh, that can often be asked about features analytics. I've I'm trying to think of a time where I've been successful in being like, but do do we actually need to do analytics, or do we need to do that much custom analytics, or do we need multiple analytics systems? Almost always, it seems to be one of those things that there's no room for negotiating, no room for reduction in feature set. It's like, yeah, got to have analytics, got to have the full analytics suite, got to have all the events, and that's just that. And it's always. When I have those conversations, there's always sort of a resigned note to the conversation where it's like, yeah, no, I get it. But yeah, we have to have it. I'm like, okay, cool. Then that's what we're doing. We've had the conversation. That is now the decision. But it makes me a little sad. Uh, I get it. Analytics are useful. And when I worked on other systems in the past where I was on more of the business side, it's been useful to know how people are using the system. But also, what if we didn't? (laughs) I reason with analytics in terms of it's also helpful, not just to the business side, but to us developers. So when there is a feature request that comes along and when someone is advocating that we add a particular feature or perhaps a feature is not designed in the right way and so we should change it, that then we as developers can say, well, what does the data say? And so we then also lean into, do we have any analytics around this that sort of like backs up the fact that we need to change how this behaves or that we want to pursue a new feature? So even as a developer, I I definitely feel the benefits of implementing analytics early on, just so then when that question does arise, we have the data versus asking the question and then being, well, we have no data, so we don't know. We'll just fly blindly. As always, I appreciate the cup half full mindset because I totally agree with that. The like analytics can be deeply useful even in just other conversations like that. So yeah, that's a that's an excellent framing. Thank you. I, well, I think I just tricked you where I started out with saying this is a thing that goes against our values in the sense that we are implementing something before we need it. And then you're like, yeah, that's right. And I'm like, well, actually, <laughs> it totally makes yes, you're, sense. You're very tricky. <laughs> but again, like it's all optimizations and back and forth. And uh, that's the nature of programming. But shifting gears just a little bit, I wanted to uh, revisit a topic that I feel like we've talked about loosely in some episodes, um, but broadly talking about getting your first job in programming and then getting your and next jobs. So I think there's some interesting things to say sort of along that whole adventure. And I actually was listening back recently to your interview a while ago with Brittany Martin on the Ruby on Rails podcast when she had you on. And you had some particularly pointed and thoughtful ideas about uh, breaking into the world of programming and, and how you approach that. So I would love to talk a little bit more about those and then how we think about getting the next couple jobs. So yeah, what are your thoughts? That sounds great. I love this topic. And we can include in the show notes a link to the episode where Brittany Martin and I chat about this particular topic as well. In terms of getting that first job, is that where we should start? Are we talking more like you've got your first job and then how to go from there? I think getting the first job seems like a great place to start. Got to start somewhere. So that seems like... (laughs) one. That's totally fair. That seems like a good starting point. (laughs) So my experience in getting that first job, it's pretty difficult, even coming out of a boot camp where you have just crammed your head with a bunch of new knowledge and acquired some new skills. And typically, boot camps do have someone in-house that is helping you get that first job and land interviews. And even with the help of someone that's at that boot camp helping you through that process, it's still really difficult because you basically have to go to companies and say, hey, I'm brand new to this, but I've worked really hard. Please give me a chance and go from there. 
So some of the advice that I had shared with Brittany was around reaching out to recruiters very early on. So I started talking to recruiters, I think my first month into the bootcamp program. So I happened to go to Launch Academy. And even a month in, I realized the value of talking to recruiters because they had inside knowledge into all the different companies, so what skills they were looking for. They could also give me interview tips, anything that would help me stand out and when it came to getting that first job. So reaching out to recruiters very early on is something that I highly recommend to everyone, even if you are further along into your career. I just think that they're a really great asset to have. I mean, they are people that are often very good at their job and their success is directly tied to your success. That in particular, when you said that on the uh, Ruby on Rails podcast really caught my attention because that is not something that I have thought about at all. And I feel like recruiters get sort of this spectrum of responses, which there's frankly a lot of negativity towards recruiters. I personally don't feel that that is warranted. Some of them definitely can have tactics that are underhanded and things like that. So in those cases, that's less than good. But in general, these are people that are trying to do a meaningful thing, which is we need more developers, we need to find them, companies need to hire folks. And so I basically uniformly say, thank you for reaching out, but I'm not interested at this time. Or actually, I use the LinkedIn automatic, whatever button it is. But I've, I'd never thought about actually proactively sort of maintaining a relationship there. And I can only imagine that recruiters, theirs is very much a numbers game, as far as I can tell, where they are trying to reach out to any developer and any sort of interaction that they can get. I'm sure that they are very happy to talk and to, like you said, provide that information. And if they're able to be valuable for you, then you're more likely to work with them in the future. And so it's sort of this win-win situation. Uh, I also really uh, like the ideas that you were saying around they can be sort of an aggregator of what is the market looking for. Uh, and again, that's sort of like user-centric, not that I guess users are hiring companies at this point in, in this weird version of the analogy, but the idea of what do the people on the other side of this arrangement want and how, how can I find that out? And the idea that recruiters are people that have that information somewhat uniquely is really interesting to me. And again, something that I had not thought of. Mine is just like, nope, not right now, recruiter. Thank you. Uh, but politely, please, let's not continue talking. And I love the idea that, no, let's actually flip that around and let's talk to them. Why not? Yeah, I think a number of us have all received those recruiter emails where the person uh, either made a goof or just didn't try as a copy pasta mistake, where it's like, if they send something to me, and they're like, Hi, Steve, you know, I've got a great job for you. And I'm like, No, you didn't, you didn't need to even try. <laughs> so I think that's where some of the discontent with recruiters comes or the ideas around not using a recruiter because most of us have received those types of emails. Uh, but in my experience, working with a recruiter has been fabulous because it puts someone in your corner. It's someone who knows exactly what you're going through, what you're striving for. It's someone that you can bounce ideas off of. So I think they are just incredibly helpful. And I advocate to everyone who is either looking for that first job or even maybe looking for that next job to really level up your job hunt and reach out to recruiters and get their advice. I think that's a really great tip. And again, one I wish I had had in the long, long ago when I was searching for my first job. Interestingly for me, the experience of looking for my first job was there was a period where I was sort of starting to put out feelers, but it very much the network, the small network that I had put together at that point sort of flipped everything on its head. I was just sort of having conversations with the people that I was talking with anyway. Uh, I had sort of informational interviews or grabbed lunch is frankly what it ended up being with a few people. And that helped sort of encourage the story. And I still remember so pointedly, I was having lunch with uh, two thought botters, Ben Ornstein and Mike Burns. And I was talking about how, okay, well, I, I obviously, I was a mechanical engineer at that point. That was what my background was. And I made the offhand comment that like, oh, well, obviously, you know, I need to go back to school, get my computer science degree. And they both just looked up and they're like, no, you don't. I don't have a computer science degree. And then I think it was Mike was like, oh, no, I don't either. I was like, wait, what? That's true? That's a thing? Uh, and frankly, I had connected with them through a meetup. And so it was all these little examples of how forming just small relationships really can help. And then that ended up, you know, that is why we are talking today is through that um, series of interactions. And actually circling back, uh, the Broadway that I actually got introduced, and like I said, was through meetups, but it was particularly, uh, there was a lightning talk segment. And I just made sure that I was ready to talk at that lightning talk moment, because I, I felt like that was a moment for me to stand up and sort of introduce myself to the room. It may not be everyone's thing, but if that is something that you're open to, it's a great way to sort of shift the conversation around instead of having to introduce yourself one on one to everyone in the room. This is now a way to, to talk to a group of people. But finding that sort of thing. So for some folks, that may work. For other folks, maybe it's working online or answering questions or things like that. But how can you get connected to more people? At this point, every 
single job. I actually, you know, I've, I've worked at ThoughtBot and now I've had a few clients since, but every one of those opportunities has come through my network, the people that I've worked with and been friends with and, you know, had coffee with, as opposed to a job posting somewhere that I reply to, that sort of thing. And that's just my personal experience, but it is interesting to me that 100% of it fits into that space for me. Yeah, I also completely agree with the idea of how influential and helpful having a network can be and then building that network. So that will often open a door to your first job or to your next job. It's also incredibly hard to build up that network, especially right now when most of us are in more of like a quarantine mode and people aren't going into the office. We don't have the same meetups. Now we do have online events and online conferences that are happening as well. But a couple individuals that I'm talking with right now who have reached out to me and asked, like, how do I build my network when I'm in this moment? And it's a hard question because they're doing the right things. They're reaching out to people. uh, They are watching conference talks and then reaching out to that person and saying, hey, I really enjoyed that topic. I'd love to talk more about it whenever you have time. They're finding out that most people don't respond to them, I imagine, just because they're busy. And so they don't have time to get back to everyone who has sent them a message. So building that network as wonderful as it is, is a real challenge. And honestly, I don't have a great fix for it. Like I have some ideas around ways that you can pursue building that connection with somebody, but it really comes down to other people being willing to open up their networks as well to new people. I think that's a big part of it. So if you are someone that already has a network and you see people that are trying to break in, like be one of the individuals that invites them in because they're probably trying really hard right now to extend their network and they need your help. I don't know what the digital equivalent of it is, but there's the Pac-Man rule, which I think I've talked about in the past. But the idea of if you're at a conference or some you know group gathering, when people are standing in a circle, make sure you always leave one slot in the circle open. And then if somebody comes and joins that spot in the circle, so it's you know a way to be welcoming, then if somebody joins, you expand the circle once more and leave one slot open. Uh, and I, again, I don't know what that looks like in this day. We're all trying to figure out what you know the world looks like in these moments. I will say my experience right now has been interesting in that I have felt more comfortable reaching out and trying to just connect with someone on the internet because we're all sort of locked down and I, I think a little bit starved for connection. And I've had more people reaching out to me as well. I think you need to very carefully calibrate that outreach Make sure that it's not a big ask of that other person. So it's not, hey, person that I've never met before, can I have an hour of your time in a Skype call? Like That's probably going to be a no almost all the time. But if you start with like a Twitter DM or an email that is, hey, I totally respect uh, if you don't have the time right now, but I have this one pointed question wondering if you could give me some feedback. And if that starts a conversation, then maybe it grows from there and then maybe it turns into a Zoom call some night or, or something like that. And the fact that everyone now is sort of communicating through these video chats, for me personally, has made me feel more comfortable being like, hey, do you want to hang out on a video call tonight and just catch up? And so I've actually connected with more people than I would have normally. Like I I very much was hanging out with my colleagues in the office previously, and then the world turned into what the world looks like now. And so it has almost been helpful for me in getting over a little bit of my personal resistance to reaching out and, and trying to make those sort of connections. Yeah, that's a fabulous point. Kind of along the lines where you and I advocate for we want to make it easy for whoever's reviewing a PR to say yes to that PR. It comes down to you want to make it easy for whoever you're sending that request to, to say yes, or to provide a quick response to whatever your question is. And then maybe it will elaborate into a further conversation from there. But definitely prioritize protecting that other person's time. So it's very easy for them to respond to you. Because then otherwise, if they're like me, it's just a bit overwhelming if someone just has like a really big general ask. And I'm like, oh, gosh, I don't know what to do with that. And then I just never respond because I don't I don't know how to respond to it. Yeah, absolutely. One other idea that I have around this, and I'm, I'm not actually sure that I believe in, but I'm interested in your opinion on it, is often I'll get somewhat larger asks or it's, you know, people with general career advice, like, what would you tell me to do in this situation? And what technology should I look at? And what framework should I be working on? I'm like, that's that's a big answer. And I'm bad at writing. So when I write, it's going to take me a while. And so someone has now asked for a bunch of my time. And so sometimes I will respond, like, unfortunately, I just don't have the time to respond to that right now. But best of luck, here's, you know, one, I will almost always include one thing because I, I can't just say no, I've not learned how to do that yet. But if it's flipped around and someone asks me something on Twitter or best of all asks a question into this podcast, then that time that I'm spending on answering it is actually something that I can share with other people more broadly. And so we, you and I happen to have this podcast as sort of an outlet for that sort of thing. But I think 
if you're asking someone who's in a position, like if this is someone that you follow on Twitter who is producing content or something like that, perhaps framing it as, and by all means, if you'd prefer for me to ask this on Twitter so that you can answer it publicly, I don't know if other people would be into that, but that's definitely a thing. Like, by all means, if you want me or probably you to answer a question, the best way to get us to do that is to ask it via the bike shed and, and allow us to answer it on the bike shed so that we can share that with more people. And then it sort of changes the time calculation around the whole thing. I really like how you provided an example of questions that are hard for folks to answer. That's really a good one where people are like, what tech stack should I learn? And that's one of those overwhelming questions for me because I'm like, I don't know. That's a personal decision in terms of what are you looking for? What do you enjoy? What kind of companies would you like to engage with? And I have to learn a lot more about that person before I can begin to answer that question. So that feels like one of those questions that is best for a recruiter because they're the ones that are going to understand your market and to go along with what you're saying. That's also a good use of their time to learn about you and then get to work with you. So that's a really great question to ask them because then it's beneficial to both parties. I did just have an idea in regards to building your network in ways that we are limited where we can't interact with people. And this also ties in nicely with some of the other ideas that I tend to follow in terms of when I was getting a first job or if I were looking for another job. And one way to build your network is to create content and share content with people. So then you are not necessarily the person that you are seeking to others to engage with you, but instead you are creating content so people can engage with you in return. So documenting your journey as you are learning, whether you are just starting a boot camp, if you're learning online, if you're teaching yourself, but sharing that with everyone else, because I, I promise there are other people that are having those same thoughts and questions and they would benefit from seeing that. There's someone that I recently started following on Twitter. His name is William Johnson. And I think he has done a really great job of where he has shared a lot of his journey and learns in public and even wrote a book that talks about how he leveraged Twitter to gain his first job. We can include a link to his Twitter account in the show notes. And in addition to creating that content is also mentoring others, which sounds like this. If you're new to coding, you're like, how could I possibly begin to mentor others? But I promise there's always someone that is newer to a topic than you are. Even if you're like one day in, or if you're like 10 years in, there's always someone that you're going to be able to help out. And I think that's a great way for, again, for you to engage with other people, to build your network, but then also to build your own mentoring and teaching skills and to make sure that you understand a subject well. Something else along the lines of getting that first job that I feel like is just worth putting out there into the universe is that interviews are hard and you are going to have a rough interview at some point. Like that is just going to be part of your experience. There's a particular book that I think of um, in terms of talking about interviews. Have you heard of the, it's a kid's book. It's called Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day by Judith Viorst. Yes, I've heard of the book. I haven't read it in many years. I assume I read it when I was younger, but uh, yeah. So it's a, it's a pretty cute book and it's basically about this kid, Alexander, and the running theme through the book is that Alexander is having a horrible, no good, very bad day and these things keep happening. And each time something bad happens, he talks about how he wants to move to Australia because he thinks it will be better there. And his mother reassures him that everybody has bad days, even people who live in Australia. And... I think that applies so well to interviews that everybody is going to go through bad interviews. Hopefully it's more because it was just a poorly designed interview or perhaps your own stress levels prevented you from your top performance uh, and versus like if people are truly unkind to you. But I am someone I have definitely I've bombed an interview or two. And that's something that we could talk about if you want. And I found ways that I think worked well in terms of if you are in that situation and you just know the interview is not going well. In my case, it was more because I was stressed. And so I just knew I wasn't giving them my best version of myself, but then still how to make it a graceful interview or to learn something from that interview. So yeah, just know it's going to happen and it's totally fine. We're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, Scout APM. Scout APM is quickly becoming my go-to performance monitoring tool for Rails apps. I love opening it up to see a prioritized list of issues that I can quickly knock out before end users ever see them. With the weekly digest and alerts, I can rest easy knowing that Scout will let me know if issues arise. Ultimately, Scout APM empowers developers to spend more time building great products by minimizing the effort required to identify and resolve performance issues. Scout's developer-centric approach quickly pinpoints N plus one queries, memory bloat, and other abnormalities. Their tracing logic saves me a ton of time by tying bottlenecks back to the line of code causing the issue. Give Scout a try for free today, and you'll have the performance insights you've been dreaming of within four minutes. Sign up through scoutapm.com slash bikeshed, and Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. 
So give it a try. And thanks again to Scout for sponsoring this episode of The Bike Shed. Actually, I have a particular question on that topic. Uh, There's a strategy that I've heard people talk about that I have never done. And presumably you have not done it for the past few years while working at ThoughtBot. But I've heard folks talk about just always taking interviews, just, you know, once every couple of months, take an interview just to go out there to see what the world looks like. It's similar to what you're saying of recruiters can give you feedback about what the market wants and how the market values various things using interviews as a technique for that and it's you don't necessarily plan to leave but it's a chance to like brush up your skills keep yourself connected with the broader hiring market again it's not something that i've done because it just doesn't match with me uh, while i'm at a place that's where i'm at but is this something that you've done in the past obviously before thoughtbot certainly not during thoughtbot time but <laughs> no it's not something that i've done i think for a couple of reasons one interview stressed me out enough that that would be really hard for me to do i can understand the merit as to why people would advocate for that approach because then ideally if you do enough of them then you learn how to manage that stress and they become easier to engage in the other reason is i I feel a little false to take an interview that I'm not interested in. Now, if I'm going into interview mode, then I will certainly take some interviews that maybe I'm not super interested in that team, but I just need the practice. And who knows, maybe it'll blossom into something real. But in the past, I haven't chosen to do that, just like off the cuff, take an interview for the practice because then I don't want to waste their time. But that is an interesting approach. I do have that mentality when it comes to pairing in the sense that I always want to pair with people because I want to be really comfortable and people watching me code and being able to think while someone is watching and then also implementing something that I'm new to while someone else is there with me. I feel like that's a very applicable skill in interviews. So I do have that in mind where I'm always interested in pairing because I'm thinking this will help me one day you know, in an interview setting where I need to be able to manage these feelings of anxiety of someone watching while I'm code, even though it's a more collaborative process, ideally, while you're pairing, but it still mimics that kind of interview style. That's interesting. I hadn't thought of the parallels there, but they, they definitely make sense. And um, that's an interesting sort of like smaller way to still sort of keep communicating about code, sort of some of the same tools that aren't necessarily as useful when you're just sitting heads down, headphone on at a desk. And yeah, like I said, I, I also have not been the sort of person to take sporadic interviews throughout, but it, it was an interesting one that came to mind. And as you were talking about interviews, wanted to ask. So unsurprised by your answer, but uh, it's a data point that's out there for folks. Yeah, I can see how that would be a, a totally like handy approach and how it would make you like fairly comfortable and exceptional interviewing. It totally makes sense to me. But yeah, I'm with you. I'm just not sure it would fit my personality. So I'm interested then, we've talked a little bit about getting your first job, about interviews, just a a bit, but broadly speaking, what about that next job or the job after that? How do you think about career progression in this world of programming? Big topic. Write a whole blog post about it, please. (laughs) Uh, It is a big topic. It's a hard one. I feel like there are so many different ways and so many people who probably have written blog posts on this particular topic that I'm trying to think of opinions that I have that may be unique in terms of career growth. And something that I did hear recently that I really appreciated and have been thinking about is the idea of finding what gives you energy in terms of your next career step. So maybe if you're going from like a junior to a senior developer, uh, that feels a bit more like you know where you're headed. But if you are in a position where you're like, okay, I've achieved this like status, whether that's senior or higher, but then you're not sure where to go from there. Do you follow the more individual contributor role and continue in that path? Or would you like to go more into management. And the question that I received from somebody was like, well, what gives you energy? What about your day-to-day details? Which tasks are you working on that you can identify like this is really draining and I don't get as much joy from this versus these particular tasks like I'm more jazzed to get into. So I have been thinking about from that perspective about which tasks in my day-to-day details do I really enjoy? Yeah, I like that uh, follow the joy idea. It's interesting. I think there's a couple different like you can think about that in terms of technology area. Do you find yourself gravitating towards DevOps? Is that sort of work that each time one of those tickets comes along, you're excited and you grab that? Or is it more back-end feature work or front-end or machine learning? Maybe that's a new thing that's coming into the team or data science. And you can sort of see which of those tasks, you know, where does the flow state come from? Where are the days where you just lose hours and you're just completely immersed in the work? That's a way to think about it in terms of the specific tasks that you're doing. Then I think there's also the more general, do you really enjoy mentoring? Is that something where if you're pairing with someone else or if you're doing code review or if you're providing a small lunch and learn 
tailoring to the team on a topic, maybe that's an area to double down on it to try and move towards sort of a team lead mentor role a bit more formally and try and pursue that either internal to the organization that you're at or potentially look for are there companies out there that are specifically highlighting that in their job summaries. It's interesting. I'm I'm generally a fan of trying to find ways to move within a company because I think it's much easier to change the sort of role that you have. So if you're a developer and you want to move over to DevOps, I feel like that's easier to do within an organization that you've already built trust. But sometimes you do need to take the big hop and move over. But I think wherever possible, if you can move in an organization, so say like, I'm a developer, I want to move to DevOps, do that at an organization. And then maybe from there, you can hop to a different DevOps role at a different company. But now you've got a little bit of experience under your belt rather than in an interview when the question comes up, so how much DevOps work have you done? And the answer is like, well, uh, none. I, I have an AWS account, so that's a thing. But... I don't actually know how to log in because it's AWS. Does anybody know how to log into it? That's all you need, right? AWS account. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. That's what DevOps is, right? It's just having an AWS account and knowing what the acronyms mean. Frankly, if you know all of those 100 acronyms, you got it. Uh, I actually don't know what DevOps is, (laughs) to be honest. That's an area that I personally have not pursued more. But it is interesting as I look at my career and the things that I have done, like I've stayed very strongly in the web space. That's been true in terms of technology. But I've also very much sought out mentoring and situations like I don't want to be the developer who takes a big task, runs and, and builds a whole thing just completely on my own. I really love getting to work with a team, getting to help share ideas and find a collaborative workflow and make you know a whole team move faster as opposed to just one individual but I think there are plenty of folks for whom that would be the opposite would be true. And so figuring that out about yourself and then pursuing that in whatever form that can take, that that feels like a way to go about this. Yeah, I really appreciate the philosophy of grow where you're planted approach. So take the job that you currently have and really knock it out of the park. And of course, this comes with the caveat that you are working with a team that supports you and that you feel really healthy and productive at that team. So then based on that ideal scenario, if you are with a team that you can grow, then totally take that and run with it and explore different areas that you're interested in to figure out where you're going next. I've also seen a couple people that have on Twitter allude to the idea of a career coach. And I'm very intrigued in that idea as well, because that kind of circles back to recruiters where you have somebody in your corner, someone that you can talk to, someone who maybe they aren't specific to tech. I don't actually know. I haven't gone down like the real career coach path yet. So I don't even know if they would need to be specific to tech, although that makes sense. But then someone who can coach you through the process of what questions do you need to ask yourself to figure out where you want to go next to to figure out what you're really interested in and where you want to invest your time and leveling up more skills. I also feel like a lot of the how you get your in next jobs is very similar to how you get your first job. It comes down to, as you'd mentioned, like having your network, learning in public, and then sharing that experience with others, mentoring, and then also pushing the boundaries that you have. That's probably something that comes a bit further along once you get your first job. I mean, frankly, you're probably just like treading water at that point where you've learned so much, either if you're fresh out of college or if you just learned online or if you've finished a boot camp, like you're already pushing so many boundaries at that point. But for people who have been in a particular job for a couple of years, making sure that they're still looking for areas like, well, maybe I could expand like this particular skill and see if then if that's really the area that I want to focus on or if I'm I'm happier with these other skills. So I feel like a lot of the same advice for getting your first job applies to when you're getting like your fifth or your 10th job, whichever one it is. It's pretty pretty similar. I think it comes down to more time to reflect on where you want to go next. Because your first job, you really just need someone to give you a chance versus like those other jobs, it comes down to what do I really enjoy? And where would I like to go? And then finding people who can help you answer those questions. Yeah, the knowing even what questions to ask, and then you know, which ones to discard is always, I think, an interesting part of of this process. Actually, one question that I'm interested in your thoughts on, and I don't think it's an either or, or a um, an obvious correct answer. I think it's probably personal, but Breath versus depth, learning a bunch of things, learning about all the different topics, CSS and JavaScript and backend and database and all the things versus going really deep on a specific topic and becoming a particular expert around that topic. How do you in particular think about that? I have mixed feelings. I think they both lead to very successful careers. I have found I really enjoy consulting. So that requires more of like a breadth knowledge. So I tend to need to know a bunch of different skills and also be able to ramp up quickly on those skills. So that is where I've landed. I also find that that approach, while it can be very engaging because you get to switch topics and learn something new, it can also be very stressful because you feel like you're constantly new-ish to a topic or you don't ever feel really solidified in one particular skill because you are hopping around. 
So I think that's why I have mixed feelings. I have turned into someone that is far more about the breadth because of my consulting role. But I do also acknowledge that pursuing that particular path for me has led to some more stress where then I reflect and I'm like, well, what are my core skills and what do I do really well? And recognizing that I really enjoy Rails, but maybe I'll be on a client project where I don't use Rails for a year. Thankfully, Rails is pretty easy to come back to. So that's been really nice. But then feeling like this lack of continuity has been a a struggle at times for me. How about you? Yeah, I think very similar. Uh, Again, you know, being consultants, there's a reason we've been doing this for as many years as we have. The novelty, I think, is is very interesting and engaging for me. But at the same time, there are definitely, it's sort of a, for me, a hybrid approach of I try and learn about all the new things as they're coming out. But at a surface, like I want to have familiarity with like, what, what's Views deal? What are they doing over there? What, what's going on with Svelte? What's happening? Is this, should I pay more attention to that or should I not? But there are certain topics that I have more and more over time tried to really expand my knowledge on. And they, they're the sort of ones that like, if they're still there many years in a row, I feel more interested in investing and reinvesting in those topics. So in particular, the database is one that I've been spending a lot more time with lately. So Postgres in particular, but more generally, just relational database ideas and indexes and how do we make them fast and how do we push logic down into the database? Because I think that's a good place for a lot of it to live. And so finding the few different things that are worth investing in a little bit more but then also for me definitely having a a bit broader of an approach but it certainly is a trade-off like i am an expert in few things as a result and i am a jack of many trades but um again i enjoy that and i think there is there's definitely a way that that can be beneficial where each new thing i'm able to look at through the lens of all of the other stuff that i have in mind and so although i don't know much about a given topic i can say well this other thing i think is similar and here's my experience with that uh, and i have found that to be useful but i think this is one of those hard questions and a question that's worth asking to yourself do you value mastery and expertise like is that a thing that brings you joy in a given day when you're like i know how to do this thing i know it so well inside and out Or do you gravitate towards novelty? And again, I I think I unfortunately am like, yes, to all and both, please. But if you're able to answer that more concretely for yourself, then I think you can choose a path that is geared towards the one end or the other or find sort of your right optimization point on that spectrum. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. That's something that I've also seen other ThoughtBotters have that conversation with themselves about. Because as someone is joining ThoughtBot, if they go through apprenticeship to developer, senior developer, team lead, and sort of like go through that progression, some of the questions that we will self-evaluate on are, what am I an expert at? Like, where do my skills lie? And a number of us are like, well, I'm really decent at a bunch of things. And yet I feel like I lack some of the depth in like particular subjects. And I think that is one of like the core ThoughtBot skills is the fact that you can jump around to different technologies and different teams and still make a very meaningful contribution. So it changes sort of like what is your core skill? It may not be a particular tech stack or language, but it is more in your ability to like hop into something new and then still produce work. Well, cool. I think that probably covers this interesting topic. Uh, It's one that I I personally struggle with. And so I was really happy to get to chat with you a little bit about it. And hopefully folks have found some value in uh, in the ideas and maybe it'll help them find their N plus one jobs. N plus one normally sounds like a bad thing, but in this case, I think it's a good thing. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought up this topic. It's something that I've certainly had a fair amount of experience in. So I'm always happy to chat about it. Cool. Well, with that, let's wrap up. Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. The show is produced and edited by the one and only Tom Obarski. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even a review in iTunes as it really helps other people find the show. If you have feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed or reach me at Chris Toomey. And I'm at S. Vigari. Or you can email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.